0: Come for the good looks and humor, stay for the wisdom. This is episode two of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and thank you so much for the positive response to episode one. This is the first time that I've been in front of a camera on my own, especially for 30, 45 minutes at a time, and it was a little intimidating at first. I'm not going to lie, but I feel like we had a really positive first episode. Again, you guys left some wonderful comments, some great feedback for me, and I look forward to taking it on and improving as we go. We have another great show for you. Last time we started off with LeBron James breaking the all-time scoring record, and we are starting off with another basketball story today, the Brooklyn Nets disaster class. The Brooklyn Nets have traded Kevin Durant to the Phoenix Suns, which officially ends the experiment of the most talented big three in NBA history. If you have forgotten already, that was James Harden, Kyrie Irving, and Kevin Durant. Right off the bat, this is the biggest failure in NBA history. You have a top 15 all-time player in Kevin Durant. You have a top 50, top 40. I haven't quite done the math on James Harden where he ranks, but we know he's way up there. And Kyrie Irving, one of the five most skilled players that we've ever seen, he's underachieved from what his talent level might have been but you can't deny what he has. He's a career 39, three point percent shooter. He shoots 88% from the free throw line. He's won a title with Cleveland over the 73 and nine golden state warriors hitting the biggest shot in NBA history. If you want to argue Ray Allen against the Spurs, fine. The second biggest shot in NBA history. It doesn't matter. We know what Kyrie Irving brings to the table. He's averaging a humble 27, five and five this season. And people aren't even talking about him that much. It's crazy in my eyes that they had these three guys on the team. They were a shoe in for the title for most people. Not for me. I didn't buy it. That's documented. But most people, sports books included, thought the Nets were going to sweep their way to the finals. They never even got out of the second round. Kyrie and Kevin Durant were in Brooklyn for four years. They made the playoffs all four years, but they lost in the first round three times. Last year, they got swept in the first round by the Boston Celtics. The one year they got out of the first round, they lost in the second round to the Milwaukee Bucks. It's a crazy situation. I feel horrible for the Brooklyn faithful and the New Jersey Nets faithful as well, because they, that New Jersey nets team with Jason Kidd and Richard Jefferson, they actually gave the nets real reason for optimism. They actually competed for an NBA finals. What in the world have the Brooklyn nets done? It started with the Paul Pierce, Kevin Garnett acquisition. People thought for some reason that was going to work. I don't know why they were all past their prime. They drastically overpaid, but whatever. They were in purgatory for the next however long, and suddenly you got Kyrie and Katie coming to town. Oh, we're the new title town. It's going to be sugar and rainbows. It's going to be butterflies. Everybody's going to be happy. We're sitting in the pot of gold at the end of the rainbow. Uh Uh-uh. Four years, one trip out of the first round in the playoffs. It is the biggest failure in NBA history. Don't let anybody else tell you different. Don't tell me about older guys teaming up either. Don't tell me about when Clyde Drexler and Charles Barkley joined forces. Don't tell me about when Scottie Pippen went to the Blazers. Don't tell me about when Karl Malone was on the Lakers. Save it. Don't embarrass yourself trying to defend the failure that just happened in Brooklyn. These three guys were all capable of giving you 60 on any given night. Not as a swan song to a great career. On any given night, it could have been one of them. All three of them were still in their prime. The only one who had an argument for being out of his prime was James Harden. That's because he was fat. That was his own doing. But he was still in his athletic prime. And you see him in Philadelphia now. He's slimmed down. He's not scoring as much, but he doesn't need to because Joel Embiid's averaging 34 a night. Instead, he's giving you a 22-point double-double with 11 assists. You don't think the Brooklyn Nets would have taken that when they were competing with their big three? I digress. Let's let's review what has happened with Brooklyn over the last few years. You lost Jared Allen, who became an all-star center. Karis Levert, an excellent fourth option on a team, or excellent outstanding sixth man. Torian Prince, decent role player, and three first-round picks for James Harden. Now we know that the Nets then lost James Harden the next year, traded him to the 76ers. You got Andre Drummond. He walked in free agency. You got Seth Curry. He's the best player in terms of uh, overachieving and exceeding expectations. Seth Curry is a great role player in my eyes. I think he's criminally underrated. I think a lot of teams could use him. So that's one good thing. Then you got Ben Simmons. He was at the heart of all of this. Ben Simmons, the guy who was an all NBA performer, a defensive player of the year candidate. The first pick in the draft. He's averaging seven points, six and a half rebounds, six assists this season. It's not good enough. And he's supposed to be a defensive specialist, yet he can't seem to stop anybody. I was reading one of his one of his comments from an interview either yesterday or the day before. I'm recording this Friday evening, by the way. He was saying, I'm not the same guy I was a few years ago. It's going to take time for me to bounce back. Why? What is the excuse? You're 26 years old. What do you mean you're not the same guy you were a few years ago? Your best year was your rookie year, your, your rookie year, but your second year in the NBA because you sat out the first year. So when you were a 20-year-old, however old you were, a 21-year-old, that was the best you've ever been, and you've gotten worse every year? Saying you're not the same guy that you were a few years ago is not an excuse, it's an indictment. It's reason that you should not be on the contract that you are. And I'm not pocket watching. I'm happy that you made your money. I really am. I, anybody in this world, if you can convince somebody to pay you a lot of money for the services you provide, do it. Go for it. Good for you. But the person that gave him that contract and the fact that Nets traded to take on that contract makes them fools. Let's look at what else the Nets have taken on. You traded Kyrie to the Dallas Mavericks. This is when Kevin Durant was still comfortable being with the Nets, or at least publicly. We hadn't found out that he had requested a trade yet. You traded Kyrie to the Dallas Mavericks for Dorian Finney-Smith, Spencer Dinwiddie, and I forget. Maybe one future first-round pick. I forget what the exact compensation was. That made me think that, then okay, the Nets can put a little run together. They might be able to make the conference finals. If Kevin Durant has an all-time playoff run, think back to that one time they did get into the second round when he had 49, 17, and 10, whatever he had against Giannis in the Bucks. Can he perform at that level again? If he does, he can get his team to the finals. The Brooklyn Nets team that was there in place two days ago is better than what the LeBron James took to the 2018 finals. Dorian Finney-Smith was a better player than Jeff Green. Spencer Dinwiddie, they played completely different positions, but he was a better player than Kevin Love. The Cavs had Kyle Korver, okay, but the Nets had Joe Harris. They had Uta Navy. Guys, same, same thing, knockdown shooters. Korver's better historically, but in terms of percentages and what they offered at point in their career, pretty much even. Nets had better defenders. Royce O'Neill, again, Dorian Finney-Smith. Nick Claxton, a Defensive Player of the Year candidate. Top three candidate. And then you trade Kevin Durant. See, this is where I get confused. First of all, we now know that Durant wanted to go to the Suns. So Sean Marks, the general manager of the Nets, was fine granting Durant's request. Keep in mind, Durant wanted out before Kyrie Irving. Think back to the summer. Durant demanded a trade. Demanded, requested, whatever the verbiage is. You can intermingle it. You can intermix it. He wanted out of Brooklyn and then that's just 10 dark 30. He ended up staying for a little bit. Didn't really make that much of a stink. We didn't hear of it again. You traded Kyrie to the Mavericks because you didn't want to honor his ambition to go to the Lakers. We don't know if Kyrie definitively wanted to go there, but Sean Marks and Joe Tsai believed he wanted to go there, so they made it their mission not to trade him to the Lakers. Okay, so you want to spite your player who wants out. I get that. But you you don't want to spite the guy who won it out first? Think, before Kyrie caused this off-court controversy with the anti-Semitic comments, or the anti-Semitic posts, before any of that controversy, I get if there's bad blood towards Kyrie now, but there was no bad blood when Kevin Durant was requesting out. Have we just forgotten that happened? The reason that it doesn't make any sense is this. You traded Durant to the Suns, and you got four first-round picks for it, a couple players, good players too, which I will talk about later, but you clearly want to rebuild. Why would you not set your pride aside and trade Kyrie to the Lakers? Because they were offering you multiple first-round picks. You only got one off the Mavericks, and you got Dorian Finney-Smith who serves no purpose in a rebuild. Spencer Dinwiddie serves no purpose in a rebuild. The last time he was in Brooklyn, he had a career year, yes. And maybe he can score 18 points a night. But what's that going to do for you? If your goal is to blow this team up and rebuild, I just don't understand why you keep these players. And it makes even less sense when you think about who you got from the Suns deal for Durant. Because you got Cameron Johnson. He could be your starting wing. If he's not, he's going to be the first guy off the bench. You have Mikael Bridges. That's your starting. Th- that's your starting three. That's your starting small forward. He's going to guard the best guy every night. So why do you get Finney Smith when you already have Voice O'Neal too, and Wada Navy and Joe Harris? These guys all play the same position on the court. You have nine wings on a fifteen-man roster. Some teams don't even play nine-man rotations, and you have nine wings. Another point I want to get into here. Mikhail Bridges, great player. Any championship contending team would want to have him on their roster. He can guard the best guy every night. He can shoot 40% from three. He's reliable. He doesn't do a lot of dumb stuff. He's an active cutter. He has good basketball intelligence. He doesn't demand the ball. He can fit well into pretty much any system. Again, if you are rebuilding, why on earth would you not flip Mikhail Bridges – for the four first-round picks you were offered. I saw that they were offered three first-round picks, and I said, they've got to be taking that deal. And then the deadline passed, and I thought, wow, I can't believe they kept him. And then it's unearthed that you you passed on four first-round picks, knowing you're not going to be good this year, knowing you're not going to be good in the future. And if you don't know that, you need to look yourself in the freaking mirror. Brooklyn wasn't getting any big guys to come there. That's why they had to overpay so much for Garnett and Pierce, the Celtics guys, Darren Williams. All that time passes, and they're terrible. Kyrie happens to pick you out of a hat pretty much only because you're close to Jersey, which is where he's from. Kevin Durant just tags alone for the ride. And we see the dissension, the chaos that has occurred since they got there. Do you think future free agents are are eyeing this up as a landing spot for them? No, you're not going to get a star to put next to Mikael Bridges and Nick Claxton and Dorian Finney-Smith and Royce O'Neal and these shooters to make them look good. Instead, you're stuck with a surplus of players who serve the same role that had value, immediate value, inflated value as a matter of fact. You're not getting forced round, four first-round picks from Mikael Bridges in the summer. You were going to get it now. When a team that really wanted to push themselves over the edge for championship contention, they said, screw it, this is the year, we're in, chips in the center of the table. You had that opportunity and you blew it. There's just no logic going on in in the Brooklyn front office. It doesn't make any sense. What else doesn't make sense to me is Kevin Durant. Kevin Durant, I I tweeted something the other day. I said that if somebody asked me, what is the game of basketball? And I could cut on highlights of just one player ever. We would be watching Kevin Durant film. In my eyes, that's some of the highest praise that you can possibly give somebody. They are basketball. They represent basketball. Think about it. He's smooth at every level from 35 feet to a layup in the paint he can do everything he can pass the ball he has a phenomenal handle at seven feet tall he can guard ones he can guard fives he can fit into any system he can be a volume shooter he can play off the ball He can play in isolation. He can play in motion. He can post up. There is nothing that this guy can't do. And if you don't think he's a top 15 player of all time, you're kidding yourself. And if you want to talk about skill set, he's probably in the top seven. If I'm just going off the top of my head of the most skilled players that were also all-time great. I don't want to confuse raw skill set with someone like Allen Iverson, let's say, with not being historically great. Of course, he was great, but nobody thinks Allen Iverson is a top 10 player of all time. If you're doing that list, which combines the two, you're going to have Michael Jordan, Kobe Bryant, Kevin Durant, Larry Bird, LeBron's going to be somewhere around the 10 to 20 range. Point being, he's up there. You can make a legit argument that in terms of combined skill and greatness, Kevin Durant's in the top five. And where I'm going with all of this is he really doesn't have a legacy. There is no storyline, there is no mantra that comes to mind when you think of Kevin Durant, when you hear the name Kevin Durant. He started off in Oklahoma City, and he was sensational. Everybody knew that he was going to be, obviously aside from the Portland Trailblazers, because they took Greg Oden with the first pick. But look at Katie's career. He steps in his first year, he averages 20 points, 43% shooting. That's a better field goal percentage than what LeBron did. Next year, he's 25 points. Third year, he's 30 points. And he pretty much hasn't slowed down since then. He had one year where he averaged 32 points per game. That's the year he won MVP in OKC. He's averaging 27.3 for a career. He's averaging 30 a game this year on 56% shooting. 38% from three, 93% from the free throw line. Think about how incredible that is. And this is a guy who has proven that he cannot be the driving force on a championship winner. We know he didn't win with the Supersonics, obviously. He was only there for one year, and we know he didn't win with the Thunder. He makes the most controversial decision of all time to join the Golden State Warriors. They win two titles, but he wants out because he doesn't think he's getting the credit that he deserves. He goes to Brooklyn. He assembles this big three, him, Kyrie, Harden. Again, the biggest failure in basketball history. That doesn't work. Well, you get Ben Simmons. That's the guy you wanted. You were singing his praises. You went into Philly and beat the Sixers by 20 points, talking about that was for Ben. What happened to that? You lose Kyrie and Ben. And like I was saying earlier, you still have a decent team around you. You can prove this is your moment. If anything, those two or 3 days that KD was there without Kyrie, he should have been looking at as a golden opportunity to cement himself in the history books. If he gets to the finals and loses, then he's proven that he is that guy. He does he with that team that was in place after the right before the trade deadline, he didn't need to win a title to prove that he could be the number 1 guy on a title winning team. I know that sounds a little hypocritical, but I'm not one of these people who thinks it's better to lose early in the playoffs than lose in the finals. Without turning this into a LeBron-Jordan debate, I've never understood the argument that Jordan went 6-0 and in the finals, but LeBron went 4-6. We give, cre- we give Jordan more credit for losing in the first and second round or the Eastern Conference finals than we do for LeBron to making it further in the playoffs and into the NBA finals and losing. And I'm not saying four is better than six. Obviously, that's an entirely separate part of the argument. And that's where Jordan pulls back ahead. But the point being, Kevin Durant had his opportunity. He had the opportunity to be great on his own as the guy. And he passed it up to go to Phoenix, which, by the way, the very reason he left Golden State because he wanted to prove that he didn't need to step into a ready-made system. That is exactly what he's doing by going to the Phoenix Suns. Two years ago, they were in the NBA Finals. Last year, they were the number one seed in the Western Conference. They were one game away and one all-time unbelievable performance from Luka Doncic from going to the Western Conference Finals. And I think they would have beat the Golden State Warriors. I know the Warriors won the title last year, but I still don't think they were that great of a team. And we're seeing that this year and he passed it up. I just don't know what he's thinking. Now let's transition, transition over to looking at the Suns title futures. Depending on the sports book you're looking at, the Suns are either the second or the third most likely team to win the NBA Finals. And I've got to know where that logic is coming from. I'll start with the positives. In terms of starting five, you have every component of a team that you would want in the modern NBA. You have an efficient point guard who can easily get the ball to the playmakers and become one when he wants to. We give Chris Paul a lot of crap for underperforming in the playoffs, but the last two years, he has been clutch in the playoffs, especially in that run to the title. He was dropping 40 bombs like it was nothing on the road there. It was unbelievable. Devin Booker, a two-guard who can slash and shoot, draws a lot of double teams. In the era of pace and space, that leaves three-point shooters open in the corners all the time. Kevin Durant. We know who he is. We don't need to talk about him. DeAndre Ayton a mobile big man who can defend. He can get in the post. He is a little bit hesitant at times, but he can get in the post. He can shoot the mid range. He's a good player. Monty Williams, by the way, coach of the year. From all, from what we can tell an excellent motivator of players. And now you would have liked to have Mikhail bridges or, or Cameron Johnson filling out that last spot. But you've got Tory Craig. He's a versatile player. You can go pick someone up in the buyout market. Reggie Jackson could be coming in to fill in a, a backup point guard spot. He would be good there. But let's look at this bench. This is where it falls off a cliff. The Phoenix Suns bench. Saban Lee, Damian Lee, Jock Landale. Josh Okogie, Bismack Biyombo, TJ Warren, Ish Wainwright. Do any of those people sound like they're going to be future NBA Finals winners? Let me rephrase. Do any of those people sound like they will be key rotational members of an NBA Finals winning team? Sure, they could be on the roster and that team wins it. But can you count on any of those guys to be your 6th, 7th, 8th man in the playoffs? against the other best teams in the NBA? People forget about this. When the Warriors broke through and they started their dynasty, this was the year that they beat the Cavaliers in six games in the finals, the year LeBron had the case that he could have been MVP even though they lost because Kevin Love and Kyrie Irving were both out injured. The Warriors bench had the best plus minus of any bench in the NBA. The Warriors starting five was not that great in that series. It was their bench that would consistently come in and put them ahead. They were great in the regular season. They were great in the postseason. Other recent championship-winning teams, the Lakers team that won in the bubble wasn't that deep, but pretty much all of those other teams, they had guys that were coming in and giving them huge sparks off the bench, and I just don't see any of that on the Suns. Now, again, the buyout market is still there. You could go in and pick some guys up, but if they don't do that, I simply don't see how they can sustain a long playoff run. Having that, those four guys in your starting five and whoever the fifth player is, it's just not going to be enough in my eyes. I think Dallas can beat them. I think Phoenix. I think Denver can beat them. I thought the Grizzlies could beat them. I don't know about those guys anymore. I think they're in, they're in their own heads right now. I think the Clippers could give them trouble. Clippers won the trade deadline day, in my opinion. If the Lakers somehow match up with them, they have the players to match up with them. Now, I would still take Phoenix in a heartbeat, but could be an interesting series. Pelicans, uh eh. Warriors, eh. I think it's really the Nuggets, the Mavericks, the Clippers that you're looking at. The Kings, uh, great season. They've exceeded all expectations. I'm not picking them to win a playoff series. I'm sorry it's the Kings. If I were to rank the Phoenix Suns, I would put them as the fourth most likely team to win the finals in the Western Conference. The fact they're second or third in the NBA, I don't get it and I'm going to be fading them for that very reason. Another big deal that happened in the NBA Russell Westbrook traded from the Los Angeles Lakers to the Utah Jazz. The Lakers recoup. Beasley, Malik Beasley, Jared Vanderbilt, and D'Angelo Russell. Now, this is a huge deal for multiple reasons. First of all, it's addition by subtraction. I enjoy watching Russell Westbrook sometimes, and other times he's the most unbearable player in the history of basketball. And this is not an attack on Russell Westbrook the person, Russell Westbrook's character. He's a great guy. He's always out doing community events. We know where he, what his story is. We know how hard he's worked to be where he is. And we know that he's underappreciated historically. This is an NBA 75 guy, NBA's all time leader in triple doubles, an MVP, scoring champion, assist champion, a guy who's averaged over 10 rebounds per game as a six foot three guard. He's awesome. But he made so many countless plays that were game killers. The team's mounting a comeback, and he has a couple of turnovers back-to-back. It's a close game, and he bricks a wide-open three. Sometimes it's just his presence on the court. Anthony Davis or LeBron James is deep in the post. They get triple-teamed because other teams don't even have to guard Westbrook. And they'll put the shot up anyway, and they'll miss because there's no space. Addition by subtraction. Russ was the second-worst three-point shooter in the entire NBA. The, The worst, by the way? Your Rookie of the Year, Apollo Bancaro. Westbrook was shooting 29%. He was leading the league in turnovers per 36 minutes, which is also turnovers per minute, amongst qualified players, obviously. Number one in that, surprisingly, tied with Westbrook, Giannis Antetokounmpo. This is why I really like the move for the Lakers. Aside from getting rid of those negatives that I just talked about, Malik Beasley is seventh in total threes made this year. He's only shooting 36%. That's not bad. It's not great for what you would want from somebody shooting that volume. But he's a career 39% guy. He shot 42% last year. He's going to improve that average, especially with the space that comes from playing with Anthony Davis and LeBron James. D'Angelo Russell is 12th in that list of total threes made. He's shooting 39% from the season. And even though he's a point guard, he can play off the ball. He's used to playing with Anthony Edwards, even Carl Anthony Towns, someone who dominates the ball. He can get off of the ball and he can make wide open shots. Now, he's not outstanding as a playmaker. He's not known for his defense, but he ranks 87 spots better than Westbrook in individual defensive rating. That's an underappreciated stat. Jared Vanderbilt, very versatile defensively. Six foot eight, six foot nine guy with long arms, can guard wings. Can play as a small ball five and legitimately guard centers, averaging eight rebounds a game, third on the Lakers, a block per game, second on the Lakers. He's going to come in and he's going to make an impact. The arrival of those guys also freed up the Lakers to move off of Patrick Beverly. Now, Beverly was playing better. That's not hard to do, by the way, because he was shooting 24% from three in the first couple months of the season, but he was up to about 38, 39% over the last couple of months. His defense was okay. People mistake toughness and intensity for good defense a lot of the times, and that was happening a lot with Beverly this season. He wasn't really locking down anybody. He was just trying the hardest of everybody out there. So he goes on to the magic. They're probably going to buy him out. The Lakers get Mo Bamba back. Now, I know some people are high on this. I don't really like it, mostly because I'm a long-term guy. Even in the short term, I'm a long-term. So this is a short-term move, but I'm thinking long-term. How is it going to help the Lakers in the second round of the playoffs if they get that far? It's not. Mo is not going to be on the court. But for the rest of the regular season, you have somebody who's seven feet tall. He can hit a decent clip from three, 36 to 38%, depending on what you're getting out of him. Uh, It changes the culture of the Lakers. They're less whiny, less complainy. Maybe they're a little bit less intense as well, but honestly, I don't know if that's necessarily the case, especially since they they just got so much younger. I also want to say that this Lakers team is not done. I know there's 16, excuse me, six games under 500, which means they need to go about 16-10 to finish at 500 in the regular season. You would think that gets them into the play-in, although they are only two and a half games behind the 10th seed. They looked all right in that game against the Milwaukee Bucks. couple of standout players. Dennis Schroeder had, I think, the best game that I've seen him play. I haven't dug deep to see if it was the best game of his career, but he looked great. He finished that game with 25 points, 12 assists, no turnovers. That's going to work. Lonnie Walker looked really comfortable coming off of the bench. I don't know why he was benched in the first place. I don't know if he's going to return to the starting lineup now that Beverly's gone. Uh, I would assume Malik Beasley's going to fill in there, but he gave you 15 points, looked in rhythm, had some nice pull-ups and transitions, some good rim attacks. Another player that looked great. Austin Reeves had a little crossover on Giannis Antetokounmpo, One-handed layup, drive to the cup. Looked a lot like when Iverson shook Jordan in that famous clip. Now, Reeves isn't, you know, amazing, but he's kind of underrated as a player. He can provide a lot to a team. Gave you 18 points, four rebounds the other night, seven of 11 shooting, three of four from three. That's going to work. That's somebody you can bring in as your eighth man in the rotation in the playoffs, and you can count on him. So I think the Lakers team is actually decently put together. I think it could definitely be better. This is why I can't say the Lakers won the, de- the deadline and why I can't even give them an A for their move, even though it is probably an A or A- minus move on its face. It's because they could have got Miles Turner and Buddy Heald. I don't think Jared Vanderbilt, Malik Beasley, and D'Angelo Russell are better than Buddy Heald and Miles Turner. But because they got rid of Westbrook, because they improved some weaknesses – think it's a decent move, and I think they'll be competitive in the play And if they get into the play-in, I think it's a foregone conclusion they make it into the playoffs. I mean, I like how they match up just based on experience and pride. I, these are the four teams that are in the play-in right now. If the Lakers get the ten seed, that would kick the Blazers out. Nine seed would be the Warriors. Now, that's interesting. That's very interesting. Obviously, we know the rivalry between LeBron and the Warriors – Also, the Warriors won the title last year. Warriors are 21-6 and at home and 7-21 and on the road. That's unbelievable. So who knows how that game goes. But I'll tell you this. I would take the Lakers to beat the 8-seed Timberwolves, and I would take the Lakers to beat the 7-seed Pelicans. And once they get in, they're facing either the Nuggets or the Grizzlies in the first round, depending on how it shapes out. Wouldn't count them out from beating either one, one of them. Wouldn't favor them. Don't misquote me on that would not favor them, but I wouldn't count them out from winning those games. Let's switch it on over to the big game that everybody is talking about. Super Bowl 57. I've given you my thoughts on the game. I'm sure you've already got it drawn out in your head, how it's going to play out. I'm not going to change your mind. So let me just give you some of my favorite prop bets. Number one, the over in the first half of 24 and a half. Now I know people love unders in big games. The last four Super Bowls have all gone under. I get it. I really do. But these teams ranked third and fifth in first quarter scoring, first and third in second quarter scoring, and guess what? First and second and first half scoring. I think the Chiefs' only win condition in this game is to keep the score high, and I trust them to break down that Eagles defense. I really do. They have Mahomes. No quarterback has performed better at this point in their career than he has. I think he's going to be able to cause a lot of problems for them. On the last episode, I read you all of the starting quarterbacks that the Eagles had played recently. Here's a newsflash. They have not played a definitively good quarterback since week four. The closest they got was Dak Prescott, who led the league in interceptions despite missing a quarter of the season. Aaron Rodgers. He won two MVPs but he finished 26th in quarterback rating. Those are the only two guys who even have a chance of being called top 15 quarterbacks since week 4. I think Mahomes is going to find success against these guys. Another bet that I like, Kenneth Gainwell over 19 and a half rushing yards. I am going to hammer this bet. He only had 240 yards in the regular season, but in the last 3 weeks he's at 195, the few, the lowest amount in those 3 games. 35. His line started at 16 and a half. He would have covered that with just his one longest rush in each of the two playoffs games on their own. Both of those were over 16 and a half. Now the line has moved up to 19 and a half, like I said. But guess what? He had his first career 100 yard rushing game in the Eagles' first game of the playoffs in the divisional round against the Giants. He's averaging 13 carries per game in these playoffs, 12 and 1, 14 in the other. I trust him to go over. Number three. A little parlay that I've spiced up together. Now, depending on what sports book you're using, you can get this for around plus 900 odds. Patrick Mahomes rushing touchdown, Jalen Hurts rushing touchdown. Jalen Hurts has rushed for 15 touchdowns in 17 games this season. If they get anywhere within the three yard line, they're a quarterback sneaking it. If they get within the 10 yard line, they could give him a quarterback power, he could scramble it. Again, 15 touchdowns in 17 games. He is the most unstoppable quarterback sneaker in the league. If they get it close to the goal line, if there's a penalty near the goal line, if there's a penalty in the end zone, it's an automatic touchdown for Hertz. Mahomes is the riskier one. Let me tell you why I like it. If you take out the last two games because he injured his ankle, Mahomes has rushed for a touchdown in five of 11 professional playoff games. Now, I know you're going to say, how are we going to take out those last two games because he was injured, but we're not worried about injury in this game? Mahomes was all right running the ball, scrambling, I should say. He was all right scrambling around in the pocket in that AFC championship game, and he only had six days of recovery. Carried the ball three times, looked pretty decent. Here's a second-level stat for you. The fastest speed that Mahomes reached on any play at any time in this entire season was in the AFC championship game. So even with the banged banged up ankle, he was able to move around that pocket. Now he's had two weeks to rest. I think he's going to be okay. Mahomes, again, five touchdowns on the ground in 11 playoff games in which he's been healthy. That's nearly 50-50. So the fact the odds are plus 460 last time I checked, little bit off, little bit off base. He also ran for a touchdown in one of the two Super Bowls that he appeared in. And in the one game where he didn't rush for a touchdown, he had an entirely different offensive line in there, all second and third stringers because the starters were injured, and nobody scored a touchdown for the Chiefs. How's he going to run for a touchdown if nobody could score one at all? Love this bet. Put a lot of money on this one. Got it for plus 900, I believe, as a parlay. And, yeah, I'm really hoping that one comes through for me. Travis Kelsey. As an MVP candidate, I like two long shot MVPs here. Travis Kelsey is one of them. Get him for about plus 1100 to plus 1400, depending on the sports book. And Hassan Reddick, right around plus 3000 to plus 4000, again, depending on the sports book. We can start with Reddick, as a matter of fact, since he's the guy with more value. Second in the league in sacks, number one in forced fumbles, already has a fumble recovery and a forced fumble in these playoffs, and three and a half sacks, which is the most in the playoffs. The Chiefs' offensive line is good, but if the Eagles create pressure and Reddick gets a couple of sacks and the Chiefs are held to 17 or fewer points, we know what the Eagles are going to do. They're going to run the air out of the ball. They're not going to score a bunch of points. It could, if the Eagles win a game 20 to 17, Hertz only throws for a touchdown. Let's say Miles Sanders runs for one or even Hertz runs for another. If Hassan Reddick has two sacks or a sack and a fu- forced fumble, a sack and a fumble recovery, whatever it is, He has a great chance to win MVP in this game. Switch back to Travis Kelsey. All this guy does is score touchdowns. 15 touchdowns in 19 games this season. Three touchdowns in two playoff games. Number two all-time in receiving touchdowns. Number two all-time in receiving yards in the playoffs. He had a playoff record 14 receptions in the divisional round against the Jacksonville Jaguars. Everything is streamlined. In the Chiefs' offense through him. Think about who the Chiefs have. Juju Smith Schuster is their number one wideout. He didn't even get 1,000 yards in the regular season. Kadarius Toney's there. He, he's a utility guy. And he's banged up. Nicole Hardman, he's banged up. Are you telling me Mahomes is going to throw to Sky Moore and Justin Watson and Jarek McKinnon and that's how they're going to beat the Eagles' defense? No. If the Chiefs win this game, Kelsey is practically guaranteed to have 100-plus yards and a touchdown. Could easily be 130 yards and two touchdowns. And pass catchers have won two of the last four Super Bowl MVPs. I'm talking about Cooper Cup, and I'm talking about Julian Edelman. The receivers, and in this case the tight end, have been getting their shine. Kelsey, again, moving up the all-time ladder in in the playoffs. He'll probably never reach number one in receptions, receiving yards, or touchdowns because Jerry Rice was just so dominant but he's getting his shine and he's set up for success and people this is the thing there's a bit of voter fatigue play too because Mahomes just won the mvp so if kelsey again goes out and has a strong box score chiefs win that game and he's a driving force in that people are going to say well we need to award kelsey especially with all the hype they have their podcast out this is the kelsey bowl people want the kelsey's mom to flip the coin to decide who gets the ball first there's just so much hype built around for it, it's a perfect storm for him, and it's a perfect storm for Redick, my fifth and final bet. And I know you might make fun of me. Don't call me a square better. I'm not saying this is gambling advice, and you should go bet this, although I might do it myself. And I might have to venture out to some more off-brand sports books, but I did find it as a bet, and I did find odds for it. Who will be thanked first in the Super Bowl MVP's acceptance speech? Now, hear me out. I was thinking to myself, hmm, who can you thank when you win a Super Bowl MVP? You can thank your coach, your teammates, the team, the franchise, the ownership, your friends, your family, your parents. And then I saw at plus 320 odds, God. God god himself thank god before anybody else in the acceptance speech and i said you know what i like the sound of that let me go do some research to see what the likelihood is that the super bowl mvp winner is a religious man now i knew the super bowl mvp odds. I know it's dominated by Jalen Hurts and Patrick Mahomes. They're over 10 times as likely as the next most likely guy to win. So I did some digging. I went and I watched tape from the AFC Championship game post-game interview. The one that happens right on the field. Tracy Wolfson walks right up to Patrick Mahomes. And while you might hear Travis Kelsey saying Burrowhead my ass in the background, the very first thing that comes out of Patrick Mahomes' mouth. You ready for this? I just wanna thank God. That's the first thing he said. Those were the first thoughts in his head as soon as he found out he was making it to the Super Bowl. Now, what about Jalen Hurts? Mahomes is an underdog after all, both in the MVP and in the game line. The Chiefs are the underdogs to the Eagles. What about Hurts? Well, I found an exclusive sit down interview with CBS Sports in September. And four minutes and 23 seconds into that interview, he said, God is everything and he's worthy of praise. He's worthy of praise. You don't think a guy who has the biggest athletic achievement of his life is going to forget to thank God? You think Mahomes has lost his faith or his passion for his faith? In less than two weeks after he just pronounced it on the biggest stage. I don't know which team's going to win this game. I've got my thoughts of the Chiefs. And if they win, Mahomes is probably going to win MVP. If the Eagles win, Hurts is probably going to win MVP. That's a 50-50. You know what seems pretty damn likely to me? Is that you will hear, I give glory to God when the Super Bowl MVP is announced. It's by far my favorite bet of the weekend. It was so exciting to me doing my research. This is why I love being a sports journalist, working in sports and sports betting. You can just uncover so much amazing information that many people aren't privy to. And I hope I was able to shine some light on it and open your eyes to it. And guys, when you're watching that Super Bowl this weekend, I want you to think of me. And when you hear Jalen Hurts or Patrick Mahomes grab that microphone and say it's all thanks to the man above, you say no. It's thanks to that man, Grant, on the microphone. That's how I'm going to leave you. That was prophetic. Thank you guys so much for tuning in to episode number two. We will be taking the next week off as I am traveling, but when I come back, I will see you guys for episode three. Take care of yourselves until then, and enjoy the Super Bowl.